Okay, our scripture reading for today is from 1 Kings chapter 18, and it is verse 1, and then jumping to verses 17 through 24, it is on page 299, and then 300 in your pew Bible. If any of you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take the one in front of you as a gift from us. Again, 1 Kings chapter 18, 1, and 17 to 24. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different op opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to the Brookside campus. My name is Bill Gorman and I'm the campus pastor here. We're really glad you're here, especially if this is your first time or you're newer. I know that uh, exploring a new church uh, is not an easy thing to do. Walking through the doors of a new church is, is often hard, especially if you've been away from church for a really long time, or, or maybe you've never been a part of a church before. Uh, so if you're new here this morning, thanks for being with us, and hopefully you've felt uh, warmly welcomed here this morning. Well, before we look at this passage uh, that Kate read for us, I'd love to pause for a moment and pray and ask that God would help us to understand his word and respond to it correctly. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have spoken to us through your word, that you have preserved it, uh, that you continue to speak to us. We pray now that you would help us to hear it rightly and to respond in the way that you would have us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2013, the Oxford English Dictionary added a new word to its volumes, and that word was FOMO. Uh, it's an acronym. It stands for Fear of Missing Out, uh, and it's an increasingly uh, pervasive aspect of our culture. It's, it's often used in the context of social media. The, the fear of missing out drives us to check our, our Facebook and Twitter feeds over and over again, wondering if someone else is having more fun than we are, or if there's something cooler happening right now that, that we could go to, a party that we could leave and go to something better or a better event for Friday night than than what we currently have going on. And what FOMO does, fear of missing out does, is it constantly puts us on the fence. 
We're, we're always weighing our options, but never fully committing to anything for fear of missing out on something else. And in the process, we actually end up missing out on everything because we're always on the fence, never fully in or fully out. And, and you see, this doesn't just happen with parties or friendships or relationships or careers or picking your major. All of those things uh, can experience this fear of missing out dynamic. But FOMO, this fear of missing out, also, I think, manifests itself in ultimate things as well. And I suspect that, that a lot of what is behind our, our skepticism and cynicism in our culture sometimes is a, is a spiritual, existential fear of missing out. That if I commit fully to a particular view of the world, or a faith, or a system, that, that I'm going to miss out on something better, that I'm going to close off my options, there might be something that I'd miss out on. And while FOMO might have only been added to the Oxford English Dictionary a few years ago, that the problems of sort of this religious, spiritual fear of missing out are nothing new. The nation of Israel constantly wrestled with this problem. You see, the one true God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator of all that is, he called Abraham's family, and this family would become the nation of Israel. He called this family to himself into an exclusive relationship with himself. They were to worship and serve him alone. Now, this was completely unprecedented at the time. When God calls Abraham many thousands of years ago, the baseline assumption of the culture was that there were lots of gods. And sure, maybe you would devote yourself to kind of one in particular, but you, everyone knew you had better do what was necessary to keep all of them basically happy so that your crops would grow and your family would multiply and your enemies would be defeated. No one worshipped a single god alone. In Israel, they liked Yahweh. He was great. But if the Baals were throwing a really cool party on Friday night, they might just ditch him occasionally. You see, Baal was the storm god, and the rains that he supposedly controlled brought life and fertility to the land. That's what the Canaanite religions believed. And the followers and the prophets of Baal sought to bring the rains through religious prostitution and abuse, self-mutilation. There was even archaeological evidence that suggests that they performed child sacrifice to appease and manipulate the gods. You see, when Israel first moves into this land alongside these Canaanite neighbors, they do genuinely desire to worship Yahweh exclusively, to be the unique people of God that he had called them to be. But then they began to look around. They noticed that their Canaanite neighbors' flocks were thriving. Their crops were growing, like, really well. And they would listen to them talk about how they achieved those successes, about how they would offer these sacrifices to Baal and the Asherahs. And when the Israelites looked at their flocks and saw that they weren't as good and that their fields weren't as productive, 
I slowly began to think, well, maybe, maybe just this one time, I'll just offer a sacrifice to Baal too. You know, we look around at our colleagues, we see them succeeding, and we notice how they're, they're working seven days a week. Or, oh, they, they, they pad their sales numbers just a little bit. Uh, they don't always tell the customer the, the full truth. You begin to think, well, maybe just this one time. You're, you're afraid of missing out, missing out on the path to success and security that you see them taking, and you end up on the fence trying to be faithful but not wanting to miss out. And this is exactly where Israel is at. They are on the fence, always trying to have it both ways, limping between two opinions. They are trying to happily worship Yahweh and the Canaanite gods, but Yahweh promised that if they did not worship him, alone, if they would continue to be on the fence, that he would take the reins away. And that's how our story began three weeks ago when we launched into this new series. The prophet Elijah announced to the evil king Ahab that there would be no rain. And for three years, there hasn't been any. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 18. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the earth. The author tells us right here at the beginning, he teases us with this little hint, rain is coming. Elijah, who has been outside the land of Israel, is coming back. The question, though, is why? Israel hasn't repented. They haven't turned back to Yahweh. Ahab is just as evil as he ever has been. Why is God going to send rain? How is he going to do this? How is he going to keep his promise that he wouldn't send rain and still show mercy? Is he going to break his promise? This is what the author wants us to feel as we start this story. He gives us this hint, rain is coming, Elijah's coming back, but then he just drops us down into the middle of Israel in this scene between Ahab and this random guy named Obadiah. And this Obadiah that is in this story is a different guy, didn't write the, the book of Obadiah later in the Old Testament, that's a different guy. This is just Obadiah pops onto the scene, and we get this conversation between evil king Ahab and Obadiah. And they're talking about the fact that there's not even enough water and grass left to feed the king's animals. That's how bad this has gotten. Look at verses 2 through 6. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. That was the capital of Israel. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. He was a palace official. And then we get this little note from the author that says, Now Obadiah feared the Lord, Yahweh, greatly. And when Jezebel, that's Ahab's wife, cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs of water to the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. And Ahab went one direction by himself. Obadiah went in another direction by himself. 
So they split up and go looking for grass to feed the king's animals. That's how desperate the drought is. But I want to pause here for just a second because I don't want us to miss what the author's doing with that little note. Because you see, Obadiah, he is faithful to the Lord. He's faithful to Yahweh, the one true God of Israel. And he saved the lives of all these prophets who were also faithful to Yahweh. But did you notice that he's faithful in the position he had in the court of this evil king? You see, faithfulness to God will look different for different people in different situations. Elijah is also a prophet. He's faithful to God, and God calls him to leave Israel, go out to a different land. He's dramatic. He's a confrontational voice against Ahab. Obadiah, on the other hand, is also faithful to Yahweh, but he remains as a faithful presence in the court of Ahab. Always be careful not to project your calling onto someone else. And so Obadiah is out looking for grass. And he bumps into an old friend, someone he hasn't seen in three years. Verse 7. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and says, Is it you, my Lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go and tell your Lord, that's Ahab, Behold, Elijah is here. And he said, how have I sinned, Elijah, that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? So when Obadiah hears from Elijah, I want you to go talk to Ahab and tell him I'm back, he, he comes unglued. He says, look, Elijah, Ahab's been trying to find you for three years, and every time someone thinks that they've found you, you disappeared, you go to another place, and Ahab gets really angry. And now if I go and tell him I found you, I don't know, in the meantime, God's probably going to take you away somewhere else. We're not going to be able to find you, and then Ahab's going to kill me. That's, this is Obadiah's fear. And Elijah says, I promise, as surely as Yahweh lives, I will see Ahab today. And he does. Ahab and Elijah meet that day for the first time since Elijah told him three years ago, it is not going to rain. This is what Kate read for us earlier, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab answered him, or said to him, it is, is it you, the troubler of Israel? And Elijah answers and says, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now this language of the troubler of Israel, this isn't just sort of like a, a random insult that, that Ahab comes up with. Someone who's just giving Israel a hard time. No, it's a technical term in the Old Testament to describe someone who is the cause of God's judgment on his people. Ahab comes to Elijah and says, there you are. You're the one who's causing this judgment on us. And Elijah says, yeah, I don't think so, Ahab. You, you and your family are the one who are causing the judgment, and I am going to prove it to you. Meet me at Mount Carmel along with all the prophets of Baal, all the people of Israel, and we will see who the troubler of Israel really is. Imagine it. King Ahab, all the 450 prophets of Baal, 
massive crowd of Israelites. I kind of imagine it looking like the hill at Union Station in the Royals Parade. It was just covered with people waiting to see what would happen. And Elijah says to this huge crowd gathered, how long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If Yahweh, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people didn't answer. They're on the fence. They don't know. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it into pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay on it the wood, and fi- but put no fire to it. And you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. In other words, Elijah says to them, how long are you going to be trapped, Israel, in this religious fear of missing out? This wavering on the fence between two different opinions. Let's decide once and be done with this. And so the test begins. Baal versus Yahweh. Who will hear? Who will answer? Who will respond? Both? Neither? The prophets of Baal go first. Verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it, and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. All morning, they're saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing or relieving himself, or He's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, morning, lunchtime, now it's the afternoon, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That means the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. These prophets of Baal, they called out all morning long. Nothing. The bull lays on the altar, flies buzzing around. Nothing happened. Now it's lunchtime. Nothing's happened. The dead bull just lays there collecting more flies. And and then you have to love the audacity of Elijah in this moment. I mean, there is one of him, there's 450 of them, and he just mocks them. Maybe Baal's taking a little night-night time. Maybe he's on the potty. Maybe he went bye-bye for a while. I mean, this is kind of the tone of, he's just mocking them. But they, they believe him. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Elijah. Maybe he is asleep. Maybe we need to be louder, a little more dramatic. And they start self-mutilating. They're gashing themselves with knives, crying out all the louder, nothing. Just a smellier dead bull collecting a few more flies. And the sun is starting to set behind the mountains. 
And the exhausted, defeated, bleeding prophets find themselves betrayed and abandoned by their God. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. You know, that's the loneliest moment. The moment when the thing you staked all your hopes on lets you down, abandons you, has no voice, does not hear, does not answer. It's evening now, which is significant. It's not a mistake that the author makes sure we know exactly what time it is. Because according to Jewish time reckoning, the new day begins in the evening. For example, even today, Jews who celebrate, practice the Sabbath, right? It begins at sundown in the evening of Friday, not the morning of Saturday. It's evening. A new day is beginning. The prophets of Baal had begged and pleaded with him for an entire day with no response. But now a new day is dawning even as the sun is setting. Baal's day is done. Yahweh's day is just beginning. And Elijah addresses the people. He says, come, come up close, watch what is about to happen. And Elijah rebuilds this old altar to Yahweh that had long been abandoned on the top of Mount Carmel. And and, and he digs a ditch, this wide trench around the bottom of the altar. And next he places the wood on the altar and the sacrifice is the bull. And then something completely unexpected happens. He asks some people who are nearby, he says, grab some big buckets of water and drench the wood and the sacrifice, just completely cover it in water. And then he asks them to do it again, and then a third time. Now, I'm an Eagle Scout. I've built a fire or two in my life. And one of the key things for building a fire is not soaking what you want to set on fire in water before you do it. I mean, Elijah would have never made it past Tenderfoot with these fire-building skills. This is terrible. The water completely fills the trench around. In fact, there's so much water that, again, it's, it's overflowing the sacrifice. Elijah essentially does what you want to do to put out a fire. I mean, Smokey the Bear would be really impressed with his fire-putting-out skills. There's no forest fire that's going to start from this altar In other words, nothing is going to accidentally set this sacrifice on fire. It's completely saturated. At the time of the evening sacrifice, the beginning of a new day, Elijah prays and says, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. See, the prophets of Baal, they had prayed and screamed and yelled for an entire day with no results. But at the dawn of this new day, Elijah prays one prayer and almost before the final words leave his lips fire. Imagine that giant fire cannon thing that they have at the Chiefs games. It's always amazing me how close that is to people at the Chiefs games. This fire comes down, verse 38, 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And all the people saw it and they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah prays. Yahweh immediately hears, immediately answers, immediately pays attention. Yahweh is God. He hears. He answers. He is there. And the fence on which Israel has been sitting is burned up. There is no fence anymore. And then just as the fire fell on the altar, judgment falls on the prophets of Baal, and all 450 of them are executed. Now when we read that as modern readers, it it makes us uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. This is certainly not how we respond to our enemies today, but God uses Israel in that moment to carry out his just judgment on these false prophets. You see, the author of this narrative wants us to feel about these 450 prophets of of Baal like J.K. Rowling wants us to feel about Voldemort and the Death Eaters. But the focus of the narrative quickly moves on because the focus is not the destruction of Baal, but the stunning fact that Yahweh has turned his people's hearts back and their affections back to him. When I was studying this this week, this just jumped off the page at me. God is turning the hearts of his people back to himself. He's renewing the covenant with his wayward people. He's keeping his promises even though they have broken theirs. He turns their hearts back to himself and he is sending rain and grace and mercy beyond imagining. Look at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of rushing rain, a sound that hasn't been heard in three years. And so Ahab went up to come to, to eat and to drink, and Elijah went down to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. At the seventh time he said, behold, a little cloud, like a man's hand, is rising up from the sea. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. The covenant is renewed. Right worship of the one true God is restored, if even for a moment, and the rains return. Just as the author told us they would way back in verse 1. And here's what we cannot miss about this story. That even when we are on the fence about God, he is never on the fence about us. Do you see what is happening in the story? God's people have turned their back on him. They have said, hey God, it's cool that you want our exclusive relationship with us. That you've rescued us time and time again. But we want to keep our options open. You see, over and over again in the Bible, God compares his relationship to his people to the, to the relationship of a marriage. And essentially, God's people said, hey, God, we want an open marriage. 
We want to be able to sleep with whoever we want, whenever we want, but we also still want to be married to you. I mean, you, you understand, don't you, God? And yet, in spite of this, unfathomably, God continues to pursue his people. Yes, he judges them. Yes, he sends a drought, but he does not wait for them to turn back to him. No, he sends Elijah to them. He pursues them. He turns their hearts back to him. It's so clear in Elijah's prayer that they would know today that I am God and I am turning their hearts back. That's what's happening in the story. Yes, Yahweh is more powerful than Baal. He can make fire come out of the sky. He's real. Baal isn't. But what makes Yahweh truly great isn't just that his power is so great, but that he is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. That he keeps his promises to his people no matter what, even when they turn away, even when we run away. That's our God. That's Yahweh. The one who is never on the fence about us, no matter how often we are on the fence about him, who pursues and forgives and has mercy over and over again. Do you serve a God like that? Three questions for us then. Can your God hear you? The prophets of Baal pleaded in vain for their God to hear them. I would imagine most of us here this morning aren't worshipers of Baal, but we are worshipers. Whether we're religious or not, whether we're Christians or not, uh, we all worship. That is, we, we trust in hope in something. And, and even if we are Christians, we still wrestle with this religious fear of missing out. We, we look to our reputations, our, our financial security, our families, our careers, our kids, our marriages, our relationships to give us what ultimately only Yahweh can you see, that's the definition of idolatry, turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. That our, that our functional God is whatever we cling to and rely upon for security and hope. So the question is, can that God, that functional God, hear you? Can your checking account hear when you call? Does your career hear your wordless prayers, pleading for it to be enough for you. You see, in Yahweh, we have a God who always hears, always listens, who is alive, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, wise, loving, merciful. Will you call out to him? Can your God hear you? Can your God answer you? Baal doesn't hear, and he doesn't answer. He leaves his followers without hope and exhausted. They've given everything to them, and he still gives them nothing in return. And in the end, whether we give our lives to, to pleasure or relationships or work or children, they, those things, they will fail to speak the words that you want, that you long to, that you must hear, that you are worthy, that you are loved, that you're good. Your career will never tell you that you're good enough. It will only say work harder. Your parenting will, will never tell you that you're good enough. There's always going to be someone with smarter, better behaved kids than you. 
But in Yahweh, you have a God who not only answers, but who is speaking before you were ever born. He spoke you and the whole of creation into existence, and He alone can speak the words that you so desperately need to hear. That you are good. That you are loved. That you can be forgiven and redeemed. That you can be made new. Can your God make you new? You see, Baal can't rescue his prophets. In the end, they are bitter, exhausted, spent, and condemned. And the same thing happens to us when we turn any good thing into an ultimate thing. It will ask more and more and more of us until we have nothing left, until we are exhausted, spent, and condemned. They cannot make us new. They cannot change our hearts. But Yahweh, the great covenant-keeping creator of the universe pursues even wayward and lost people, seeks out those who rebel against him and turns their hearts back to him. That, friends, is the God that we serve. God does not wait for us to come to him. He comes to us. He turns our hearts back to himself even when we're running away from him. That's what's happening in this story, which actually leads us to one final question. And that is, can your God forgive you? You see, everyone on the mountain that day deserved death. The prophets of Baal, the king, the people, even Elijah. And in the end, Baal can't forgive or save his followers of death from death. They are condemned. But those who looked to Yahweh's sacrifice and believed his promises are forgiven. See, don't you see that the fire doesn't come down on the people it comes down on the sacrifice. The sacrifice is burned up instead of them. And one day on another mountain, a sacrifice would be offered and those who would watch him die bearing the fiery wrath of God would say, surely this man was the Son of God. God, Yahweh and Jesus, the God-man, receives the wrath that you and I deserve. He forgives our sins and turns our hearts back to him. In Jesus, God keeps his promise to always be faithful and to always be just. He is faithful to his covenant at the cost of pouring out justice on himself. God renews the covenant promise with his people even as they are daring to decide if he's real or if Baal is real. He pursues them in grace and mercy to the point of death, even death on a cross. Baal's prophets shed their blood for their God, but Jesus sheds his blood for his people to forgive them, to cleanse them, to make them new. Your career can't forgive you. Your 401k can't die for you. One day your good looks will fail you. There is only one God who can forgive you and make you new. His name is Yahweh and he longs to turn his heart back to you. Get off of the fence and run to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us to know the places in our lives where we are sitting on the fence? Would you turn our hearts back to you? Because with you is the only place that we will never miss out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.